This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. So welcome to another exciting episode of Ultimate Global Podcast. And um, I'm very excited for this particular episode because after a long time, I am having my co-host along with us. um, And I'm always so excited to organize any episode uh, along with my business mentor who has been um, who has been a major, uh, who has played a major role in my life in the last two years. So grateful to have you, George. Uh, along with us. He's the CEO of Etsy Consulting and also a co-host with me at UGP. Thank you very much. Always a delight to have a chat with you, my friend. Thank you so much, George. Um, and we also have got a guest from Pakistan. His name is Fazan Ahmed. He's currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Social Medicine Initiative in Pakistan, which strives to humanize healthcare globally by considering the health outcomes in relation to the social, economic, and political factors. So welcome to this episode, Fazan, and we are very excited to listen to some of your insights that you are having from your experience in healthcare. Thank you for inviting me, Saurabh. Hello, George. I hope you're well. Good afternoon to you. Yep. So the topic for this this, uh, podcast is towards the finding out the differences between healthcare systems in the developed and developing countries. And I think this kind of lies at the core foundation of Ultimate Global Podcast because one year back when George and I decided to start with a podcast, our main focus was to discuss on these pressing, pressing issues such as healthcare, such as what's happening in Afghanistan, such as what's happening in technology. We have had a lot of discussion on technology, business, international education i think this is one of the rare episodes where we are also touch basing upon healthcare as an important issue and we all know we have recently suffered a pandemic which lasted for more than two years and is still having its after effects in different countries both in developed and developing nations and we have had experiences both in the developed countries even the best of the best healthcare systems have kind of suffered uh, during this pandemic beat Europe, beat America, beat Australia, or you talk about any developed countries. So starting off with this key question, uh, I'll point out to Fezen as to how do you see the differences between the healthcare system in the uh, in the developed countries and developing countries? And before that, would you like to also give a brief context of your business that you are doing in Pakistan? Of course. So, with regards to Social Medicine Initiative, um, thank you for your question. Uh, we actually, like you said, uh, look into the social determinants of healthcare outcomes. So, whether it's ideology, systemic violence, all of these systemic factors, how they come into play when it comes to looking into a population's healthcare outcomes, right? And so, the the concomitant conclusion from that and, and logical conclusion is that that you need to make it population-centric. So, that's been our essential uh, effort. Uh, we've directed that effort towards uh, Pakistan. We started off with that, but we also have done projects in the USA. And uh, there was an Afghan community which migrated to Pakistan with whom we also uh, st- st- strive to help them in terms of humanizing their healthcare. So, um, 
with regards to that that i would like to come to the question um i think there are stark differences between uh, the healthcare systems uh, when it comes to developed and developing countries and covid was the great equalizer in that way i mean if you have uh, if you have a lot of services and a lot of facilities available in the developed developed countries right you have them in canada and us you saw them break down and dilapidate you saw the whole system come down in a way and uh, in fact it's just uncanny how pakistan was at the forefront of being able to deliver uh, of being able to keep covid cases at a minimum right and uh, we had neighboring india as well in which these cases were skyrocketing so it's been which i think we're still trying to figure out what's been happening right where i mean we were able to come up with a vaccine real quickly and uh, real quick and we were able to distribute it albeit a little inequitably right you have a lot of vaccines in the developed countries but with the developing countries you're still looking into uh, vaccinating the populations so i think that uh, covid was an equalizer in the sense that whether it was whether there was a resource limited area or whether there were more resources in area that wasn't a big factor in terms of how the population uh, suffered from covid so apart from that generally yes there are, you have a difference of higher resource and lower resource settings and with those pro- and all those attached problems which which come with it if you have a very highly formed system if you come uh, if something like covid uh, comes unprecedentedly what happens is that the whole bureaucracy every, the whole system is like okay we've been doing this for so so long and now we have to really adapt and pivot so how do we do that considering we have so many protocols i think that was the challenge of the west and uh, for the developed uh, for the developing countries uh it was again a bit of more like come as you go right because there are a lot of pro- protocols which need to be systemized which need to be finalized over here uh in terms of emergency response in terms of sick care and uh then there is also a general inability to pay for these services right now we might th- this is also an important point to talk about i mean is it only the fact that healthcare is more expensive in developing countries and with developed countries uh, the, that isn't the case do people have higher socio economic levels which then help them out that's not necessarily the case i mean the us is a primary example of how the healthcare system is seriously dilapidated right you have and the inequality is just so stark and blatant so i would not want to just focus on the fact that just because there are higher resources in a particular place that means that the healthcare over there is perfect right uh, it is actually about is, a lot of stakeholders come together and what and what emerges is a healthcare model you can't necessarily just have a template go into a particular population and just think that the template will work out exactly how you intended to so these are just some of the factors which i wanted to talk about i would love to hear from you saurabh george how the pandemic was uh, in developed countries in australia for example and how you guys managed to uh, go through it according to the statistics i'm looking at the united states had 1.02 million deaths okay the population of with a population of 330 million and pakistan has had 30 30400 deaths so 
with a population of 180 million? Okay, yes. One of the reasons for that, I really believe, is that we are a very young population, right? So a lot of COVID which we had, a lot of us were able to break through that. And it's one of the youngest populations on Earth. So I think that that age factor also comes into play over here. Uh, I mean, you can look at Italy and how that completely, Italy was completely ruined by COVID in that sense, right? And one of the biggest reasons was that it wasn't about, yes, young people were getting uh, COVID, but it was also the the demographic of old people within that particular population. And so that also re really uh, tilted the results towards one side. And uh, it's it's quite an inexplicable phenomena. I still am trying to understand this thing that is it could be that we were young and everything but um honestly it's uh, there could be different strains even even though the reporting was coming out to be very homogenous like yes you have a delta variant over there so it's spread across the world as well but that is exactly what social medicine initiative is about what cultural factors over here inhibit or amplify the spread of coronavirus right that is a very important thing to look into so maybe it's the age demographic, but it's also maybe our lifestyle as well. So I will share my experience later on. I would just like to hear more questions from you regarding this on what we did and what and how we ended up with lower cases than we expected. Yeah, I would just want to bring I, in. I would, think, I would think that a lot of people would would see India and Pakistan as similar sort of countries. Now, whether that's exactly. true or not, I, I don't know. But in India, um, in India, they had 43 million cases with 525,000 deaths. So that is quite a, that is a very stark difference between two countries. Um, um, and, and, and you raise an interesting point about the, the average age uh, demographics of the, uh, of the population, things like that. Because yes, I, I certainly agree. Uh, many commentators have said that, oh, Italy suffered so badly because they're, they're, a, far, they're a, a, a much older population. Um, but yeah, one of the interesting things for me with COVID is the fact that it, it didn't seem to stay true um, in any statistic. If, if, you, if, you looked at, if you looked at its behaviour and you took countries to compare one against the other, it didn't, there wasn't any, I don't believe that they've been able to come up with a, a finite um, per head of population that's accurate. Yeah, I, I just want to bring in, yeah, I just want to bring in a political angle here to this discussion as well. When we are talking about these figures, there was a lot of underreporting uh, that was coming from developing countries, including the South Asian countries and most of the developing countries, we know that. So, for example, I think the deaths that you pointed out in India were reported to be around 400,000 deaths. But if you look at the unofficial figures coming from the other sources, such as the WHO, who pointed out later that the actual death figure can, act, can be 10 times the deaths reported by the government. So there seems to be a political angle into it where the gov governments are trying to hide the actual number of cases and the actual number of deaths to make sure that everything is hunky-dory in their countries and they are doing better than developed countries. But it might not be the case because there is a lot of under-reporting here in this case. So I would actually want to know from Fazan in this regard uh, as to 
what do you have to say in terms of the underreporting and all these factors playing a major role because underreporting at the end of the day doesn't improve the situation that you have in your country um and it is just a political uh, you know game played by the parties to gain more votes uh, and not work on healthcare as their priority right uh definitely this uh, sort of political angle is very relevant uh i think the opposite case for of this political coin would be the true as well that besides under reporting there has probably been over reporting as well right and a lot of cases where you had deaths there have been reports of, uh, about how unnecessarily they probably they probably died from a different cause but they were noted to have died because of covid so uh, let's like complicate the situation a little further the pcr test even in itself isn't 100% accurate if you think about it so uh, the those uh, sort of complications have also arisen so people have ended up doing multiple covid tests sometimes there have been alternatives such as antibodies tests right so um again this is something that i can i would definitely like to help you out with but in terms of knowing the truth about this i'm still trying to understand and it's still an enigma for me how pakistan considering its socio economic status could have braved through this but being over here i did see that there was one really important factor for the rural sector or for people with uh, who were lower in the socio economic criteria right uh, which was that they were really scared of not being able to attend someone's funeral because of if someone did get covid that was a huge sh- like um what should i say it was just a huge debt determinant right in terms of people acting in accordance to what was happening so whether it's under reporting over reporting uh pakistan also faced an issue of not have of of a dearth of ventilators all of these things we were experiencing as well right um but i did see things like because of when everything was shutting down because of covid people did help each other out in terms of like providing food to them because everything was closing down and everything so we're a philanthropic nation like that right and uh, i don't know i i i honestly don't know whether they're over reported or under reported but i completely agree with their point that there is always a political angle to it right there's a reason that bill gates is has written uh, a book on pandemics and is thinking of having a uh, global star- task force for this right so to be prepared for the next pandemic and he had a video which said 5 years ago that we might get a pandemic so i mean we're still probably trying to understand what's happening over here right i mean the those who were prepared best to handle this sort of pandemic ended up facing the brunt of it right and those who weren't strangely slithered out of it and we are really looking into what the actual situation is but i uh, covid has had a different response i will say that on different nations because of their socio economic determinants and uh, that has a big impact on healthcare outcomes <clears throat> so um the healthcare system in pakistan uh is relatively cheaper as compared to many other countries right and we do have a, a good amount of population turning out to be doctors uh, over here uh the issue is actually when it comes to providing an environment for patients and doctors to thrive in this particular case what mostly happens is that the best of our doctors actually go to australia or america and go and learn these things right 
uh, and uh, not only go ex- in terms of excelling their skills but end up staying over there just because of the uh, viability of it right so to speak uh, in per- perhaps every dimension so here's another here's another important fact i mean by i don't want to make this a gender segregated thing but even in terms the culture that we have in pakistan now it's recently changing but for the longest time healthcare and came became was an, um, something of a nurturing perspective over here and so a lot of women ended up uh, becoming doctors right what happened was that our culture was as such that once they got married or they do get married in certain social classes they have to give up their practice and so a lot of while the best of our doctors are going out and uh, going to other countries and offering the services uh, a lot of female doctors over here end up getting married and so they're unable to provide that sort of consistent service over there so with that context uh, when we come towards healthcare itself like hospitals uh, in the urban centers the main urban centers you do see good quality healthcare uh, which is uh, um, affordable by the middle class upper middle class and the elite class but when it comes to the um, lower middle class or people situated on the peri urban settings of people in rural areas that is where the problem starts to arise that is where we cannot say that uh, we can definitely say that healthcare needs to be more inclusive right uh, recently what has happened is that <clears throat> we have started private, so the gov- so the government always struggles with uh, with somehow providing us with these facilities right so there has been a lot of private initiative recently in these rural areas and one of the rural rural areas that i have worked in i have within those 3 years we and we went into that population we went on the side side on the side of emergency preparedness right so uh, just helping take the patient uh, in the in uh, patient to the hospital right and providing quality care in between that was essentially what uh, i had been doing so that was something that when we went into that population uh we trained locals over there and within 3 years this rural and while training these uh, this population the our good luck was as such that two private hospitals popped up over there right so this, before that we had to go around 550 minutes away to the nearest urban hospital which had a lot of risk risk attached to it as you know uh because average response time needs to not go extend beyond 15 20 minutes right and uh, so we we started off in that scenario it was very hard actually to convince the locals about consent about the fact that they had to if they were choosing a public hospital that was 50 minutes away as opposed to a private hospital which was 25 minutes away then they had to be informed about consent and that they were consenting towards these things and we were not legally liable if something happened because we had advised them to go to a private hospital but again our advice doesn't uh, given the money that they need to actually uh afford the healthcare over there so that's uh, essentially that was essentially our struggle in terms of uh emergency preparedness over there uh so the point i was trying to make is that yes now there has been a recent shift towards having welfare hospitals or private hospitals in rural areas as i said pakistan is quite inclined towards philanthropy uh but again philanthropy is only half of the uh, half of the solution right because then you need to have a system you need to have have certain protocols you need to have precedents which help you to come up with contextual uh, protocols essentially 
so that's what we've been handling and that's what what i've been looking into across pakistan as well that increasingly this private partnership is increasing and there has been this recent uh, talk of integrating health tech as well right and considering that to be a solution for problems of inclusivity right especially for marginalized groups or underpoverished groups and uh, that has uh, that has a set of problems attached to itself which i would love to talk about later on but i hope i've been able to give you a brief overview of what the healthcare system is like uh it's cheaper uh, people over here still there are a lot of gray areas which we need to figure out still in terms of how to uh manage healthcare whether it's at, at this in the sick area or whether it's bring the patient to the hospital right so just these protocols really need to be refined still uh, within within australia generally speaking uh people would consider that healthcare is accessible we, we um when you get to the country areas though they they um for they, they may be able to have doctors and all that sort of thing um but getting getting to um hospital for for um uh, operations and that then they have to travel a fair distance so throughout pakistan do, is is there some sort of medical assistance reasonably available to the population or uh is that only in the cities and once you get to the country area that dissipates or you're i think that your speculation is spot on it does dissipate like any other isolated area uh again the point is that we're developing countries so that would mean that our infrastructure is the primary cause which we need to really invest in uh we have no proper roads in those rural areas right and what happens is that if there's an emergency so the emergency medical personnel that we've trained they travel to a certain point beyond which they have to walk with the stretcher it takes an another additional 20 25 minutes to get over there and then come back right so it's not just the uh the, the road infrastructure transport infrastructure but the telecom infrastructure as well which needs to be really looked into i mean the fact that uh this is perhaps one of the biggest problems if i were to advise someone whether we need to invest in uh transport or whether telecom is definitely telecom because what happens is that there is no access at all then if there is no telecom and what happens that becomes an opportunity for charlatans and quack doctors local charlatans and quack doctors to jump up to the opportunity and pump their patients with steroids giving them chronic illnesses and diseases right so that this is not only in the rural area but it also happens in the peri urban area right outside the outskirts of the city as well so i don't think that this is a local phenomenon honestly this this could be probably ha- ha- happening anywhere and that is why we need good quality uh, business to actually expand and be able to provide such services so that which is credible and which is which is life affirming in that sense right i mean if uh, if those spaces are left in those rural populations for people to occupy and what happens is is horrendous it's horrible i mean the sort of stories you get to hear over there it's uh, you wouldn't believe that this is happening like half an hour or an hour away from the city but it is and uh, i personally am the, in 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 the capital of pakistan islamabad so this is where like i've been operating in a rural area 50 minutes away from the capital and there is no ambulance service as such we have ambulance services uh, uh that have been sponsored by various philanthropists and uh, 
what happens with that is that that's all with good intentions but what happens at the end is that that you just have an ambulance driver there is no trained person at at the back taking care of the patient right uh it's it's a very sad fact that even in urban areas even in our islamabad urban areas our public hospital has ambulances in front of it uh which do not have such personnel behind them and since they're not over there the probability of uh death or having a chronic illness increases exponentially so you only see these ambulances going and picking up dead bodies that's it that's that's their purpose that because they cannot provide that service so that ambulance is just a transport vehicle for the dead for corpses and it's it's morbid it's 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 just we it's just one if one person was behind then a lot of things could change right and that brings my point to uh, me to the second point that there is a lot of discrimination in terms of when you go to these rural areas it becomes really hard to administer medical care if the if you have an opposite gender sitting in front of I mean, it's mainly if a woman is sitting in front of you right so if you have a conservative setting where if a trained male person goes the family isn't uh, comfortable with them treating the female and so what we did was that when we went into this community around 3 4 years ago we saw that this was a problem and we trained a uh, female emergency medical personnel from over there as well so we were able in a conservative rural setting we were able to establish the first co-working space along with its necessary problems uh in that particular area so we did face a lot of backlash uh but we recently been getting a lot of recognition from the from media outlets for this work imagine that this is a conservative rural setting these women are not allowed to for the longest time have not been allowed to go out of their houses without uh, male companions and suddenly they have to wake up in the middle of the night and this is this is the beauty of doing this healthcare in that particular of doing healthcare in that particular setting is that they have such big hearts it doesn't matter that whether it's their official timing or not whether whenever you call them they will be available because that is the need of healthcare over there there is no other way of going about it so i don't if people talk about being politicians but but uh, uh, and them investing into various things but i think if they just if you want to be a politician in that particular area the most a political way of becoming a politician is to become a healthcare provider within 3 years these people have become heroes in uh, within their vicinity right women girls for the first time can look up to women doing anything other than uh, staying in the kitchen or raising kids right and and the best part is that they, that it's a need right it's not that we just want to cash in on the women empowerment narrative or something like that there is a genuine need for this and when other women look and when other girls girls look at these women and see how they're saving lives it just in really inspires them and inspires us as well honestly because uh, uh this is this was really hard to establish we had to really convince a lot of stakeholders at the at the start that hey if you don't do this this is really going to go and this is just going to go bad right so with three years we did this and then the corona virus came when the corona virus came george and saurabh can you imagine that for a terrorist religion like islam right that's that's what the general media talks about right you have in a rural setting 
the Maldives are announcing to the general population, right, the religious leaders, that you do not, that don't come for prayers right now. All right, we have these recordings with us over here in, in a local conservative setting. This wasn't even happening in Islamabad. And over there, they were saying that don't come for prayer. All right, right now, stay in your houses. We don't know what's happening. This was in the first wave of the coronavirus. And people listened. And people listened not because, and this is just, I'm still trying to understand this phenomenon. I mean, there is, we can obviously understand that there is elevated super, there is an, elevated atmosphere of superstition within uh, rural areas right but when it came came to scientifically appreciate this pandemic the rural folks turned out to be much more appreciative and much more open and receptive and progressive as compared to the urban areas right we were still trying to figure out what to do over there and i think this is the exact sort of form uh, phenomena we can look into when we're talking about covid uh, and how it impacted uh, developed countries more as compared to a Pakistan with a developing country, right? Having a, a fully formed system does not necessarily mean you're going to perform really well in, in an unexpected scenario like a pandemic, right? It is actually about can people come together, right? You saw how many people over there were against vaccinations in, in America, in Australia, in Canada, right? There, there was no, uh, what do you call it? Nobody came out on the streets to fight for their rights in terms of wearing or not wearing masks over here. It was a collective, it was a collective panic, so to speak. Everyone was like, okay, let's just quickly try to follow one thing, right? We don't have an authoritarian model like China, although we would love to, but we don't. Uh, and uh, that is, I think that is very interesting how these sort of events played and turned out. Being to, I think what I'm trying to say is being too underprepared or overprepared, being on either extreme has shown us that uh, COVID did not care about how underprepared or overprepared you were. And uh, that's, I think, the uh, lesson that we should, we need, we all of us need to take and realize that it is, a when you have pandemics, it is a public health issue. It is not just an individual issue, right? And so there are certain norms which need to be followed uh in terms of uh in terms of public health concerns and those communities that can come together realizing this are perhaps the ones that thrive out of it right i see i saw a lot of different uh thought patterns and a lot of different groups in terms of how to approach covid when it came to italy or canada and it's still happening so uh again it's important to understand that when you're exerting your own right I think it's important to know, is it infringing on the right of someone else? And I think that line has been pushed over here and there has been vacillating when it comes to uh, developed countries. But with developing countries, I think there is already a sense of like uh, community and coming together. So there are less arguments and more and more coming together towards the cause. And we did that and we are seeing the results. So. I hope that makes some sort of sense. It doesn't mean that we need to adopt a Chinese communist, communist authoritarian model and keep everything close. It's more about just um, really having everyone, every stakeholder on board, right? And actually having them on board towards this. So, yeah. So with, um, with regards to um, things like cancer treatments, uh, heart surgery, brain surgery, um, major operations, how how accessible 
is is health service to the average person in Pakistan? Uh, by average, you mean people in urban centers or rural centers? Throughout the population. Through, so with so rural the wealthy, centers, the wealthy in any country will always be looked after because the wealthy make sure they look after themselves. But the average person, Definitely. so for example, in Australia, um, I have private health cover. If uh, I injure my knee and I need to get my knee fixed, um, I can go to my private physician, I can go into a hospital, and that can happen within a week. Two weeks, maybe three weeks with COVID. <coughs> if you're in the public health system, um, a knee reconstruction is, is, is not considered urgent. And, and I have friends who have, have waited for a year to get that, that treatment. That's, so what is the situation in uh, Pakistan? So with Pakistan, it's pretty much the same. Uh, but there are some hospitals, for example, like I said, there is a huge bend towards philanthropy, right? So you have a cancer hospital over here called Shokat Khanum which provides free service for all cancer patients regardless. So Imran Khan who was recently deposed, was our prime minister who was recently deposed, was, uh, did come up with this hospital, right? And there are other hospitals like this in a, but not on the same scale, but they are popping up in that sense, right? So, but mainly in terms of quality healthcare, the, the sort of problems that you talked about, um, the, we have one hospital over here, which is known as the Aga Khan uh, Hospital, right? Uh, and that's in uh, Karachi. So Karachi, which means uh, uh, Sindh. I'm in the province of Punjab. And so we don't have a lot of hospitals like that. We have one or two hospitals. But what we do have is philanthropy, honestly. I mean, if someone appeals for that sort of thing, we one of the things that Imran Khan did when he came over, he's <laughs> deposed. Now, I don't know if you heard about it, but he did come up with a health card, which was essentially giving around uh 10 lakh rupees to every single uh, to every household uh, on the lower socioeconomic stratum right they they could avail that now when he was deposed that sort of went away except for one province uh, of, of pakistan which is khyber pakhtunkhwa kpk that's still happening over there right so there is in uh, there is huge there people really want to help out other people over here. This is a general uh, climate, so to speak, over here, right? And so it's really about how we do it in a way which is uh, internationally acceptable, right? Considering uh, sort of medical science that's happening uh, these days. But in terms of, again, you're, you're absolutely right. Most rural uh, people in the rural area or in the lower socioeconomic stratum are unable to afford such services that is still a huge issue but um again there is no health insurance model over here as well right so uh it's very hard for us to have companies over here who do that so increasingly that is why i'm looking forward to uh health tech coming in you have insurance tech as well all of these things can really help in terms of uh making this better because there is no it's not like there's an absence of will over here to help these people out. We already have precedents, like I talked about the Shokat Khanum Hospital or how excellent the Khan 
hospital is. I mean, I think you can get international level and cheaper uh, surgeries over here as compared to in Australia or America, right? Generally, healthcare is not as expensive in Pakistan as compared to first world countries. And it it can again, if you have if you're uh, wealthy, you can easily avail good quality healthcare over here. And a lot of people, while I did say brain drain, but people do come back over here to Pakistan. The only issue is that how they adapt in this atmosphere, right? Because it's just a very different ball game, so to speak, as opposed to people working outside. No matter in what sec- sector, our culture and climate, uh, social climate is as such that uh, nothing can be, it is hard for things to be nurtured over here. So we have a, br- a lot of brilliant ideas, but it just gets suppressed because the government decided is changed after every before the end of their term, right? They can't even get a five-year full term. So our policies are, are great. Our constitution is great. Everything is great. It's just that there is no consistency in implementation, and that is what we fear will be our downfall. What is our, that is what I fear will be our downfall. Like I said, we are a young nation, and if we're not going to be provided the sort of opportunities that we need to thrive over here, we're just going to fly away. So that's been that's essentially what's been happening, and uh, I really hope that we do have a lot of potential in terms of quality healthcare to start happening over here, and people really want to invest. The private sector has recently really felt that with the advent of health tech, a lot of things can be done. So um, yeah, yeah. I'm just wanting to bringing in some uh, statistics. You know, I'm a person who loves to bring in statistics and numbers behind whatever I say, um, because I don't want to say anything without any numbers. So if I look at some statistics in terms of the health spending. Uh, sorry, I just wanted to correct uh, the mistake I did earlier. I think you were the one who told me that the total population of Pakistan is around 221 million, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm just looking at the numbers here uh, for four countries. I'm looking at Pakistan, India, Australia and US. So their healthcare spending as a percentage of their total expenditure, total budget expenditure. If I look at Pakistan's recent uh, investment in their budget, which is 3.38% of their total budget. Um, I looking, if I look at India, they invested 2.1% of their overall budget into healthcare. Australia invested 10.2% recently into their healthcare budget. And United States invested 19. 7%. Now, when I'm looking at healthcare spending, I'm also looking at how much of this healthcare spending is actually reaching out to the people. So to check out that, if we check the corruption perception index from the transparency index uh, website, you can understand the ranking of those countries, how corrupt or how transparent are the governments there. So in that, Australia ranks the best at number 18. Um, United States ranks at um, at 27, India ranks at 85, and Pakistan ranks at 140. Now, this tells a lot of story to me in terms of the willingness of the government to take healthcare as a priority. I can understand that defense is a priority for India and Pakistan, but again, healthcare is equally important. And I think that's where, uh, as you said, that if the government is not coming into play, what are the other stakeholders? But I would say that if we are looking at the three A's, and what are the three A's for healthcare? You have accessibility, you have affordability, you have availability. 
Now, if these three A's are to be catered to the poorest of the poor in a country, they can only be catered by the government because um, wealthy people can be taken care of by themselves. They already have the money to go to the private hospital and do all the surgeries. The government has to play a major part, I feel, in this in this way to kind of invest and increase their expenditure towards healthcare, so that you have better beds for uh, for the poor people. You have more uh, more things available and affordable for the poor people, isn't it, George? Um, I would love to know your instance in this as well. Yeah, look, <clears throat> there's always it's always interesting when when people quote percentages of budgets spent on something. Um, it's a percentage of money that's allocated to that. Does it actually get anywhere? Um, uh, our Australian government has spent a lot of money on on flood mitigation and 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 disaster mitigation. Um, we've just come through in in Sydney uh, and New South Wales in general some horrendous floods, uh, which makes you wonder. Well, where did that money go? So. Uh, and I think um, how much of the money actually finds its way to the people um, in your country, Fazan. Um, so, and 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 where is where is that money being spent? To what level? Um, for example, um, you were saying that you have a lot of you have a lot of ambulances. Great, we've spent a lot of money on ambulances. But we have no people to put in the ambulance so what is the value of that but we can all say oh we've we've, we've put this amount of money in um and we have this same problem in australia uh, victoria has has many many ambulances and, and but we don't have people that can that, that can uh look after people in hospitals in victoria so it's always it's always an interesting um conundrum so I guess and I don't think governments I don't think governments necessarily have to be corrupt for it to not work. Um, um, Very true. Sadly, they can just be bloody inefficient. Yeah, and incompetent. Um, so, do you want me to talk about just the budget and how it's not been? We don't think it's trickled down into the right investment corners. That's been a post-colonial legacy for Pakistan since uh, 1947. I mean, to assume that Pakistan is just a corrupt nation with people at the top is one of the biggest fallacies I have come across. Uh, it, it doesn't historically take into the fact that when Pakistan was being formed, there was practically no bureaucracy over there as compared to India. There are a lot of historical factors which have shaped healthcare over here today. Colonization as a whole, for post-colonial states has been extremely, it's not, it wasn't just about resources, right? If you look, then that is what social medicine is about. A generation after that, if you get to go down two generations post-colonization, you see that people are more prone to diabetes, are more prone to heart diseases. So, and what happened in, the, in, in colonization, essentially famines, resources were plundered completely there was a lot of psychological abuse there was a lot of identity segregation all of these things have not been dealt with and are within our legal uh, and regulatory frameworks frameworks right those those things really inform how we're 
we're corrupt today, right? We haven't been able to have a democracy to make the <laughs> direct democracy, which goes trickles down to the grassroots level and is able to help us represent those sort of people who can get things done. So I really think that while obviously there is a certain part of us being corrupt about it, but it is really also what global what global forces shaped us today. So in spite of the fact that India had a better bureaucracy and everything, and uh, they have a bigger population as well, which comes with merits and demerits. When it came to COVID, we saw what happened, right? Whether we had a corrupt government or not, we still ended up being better than a lot of people, right? And so what I'm trying to say is that if we've been corrupt for the longest time, that doesn't mean things haven't been working out, right? Uh, if you have corrupt people over there, you learn to deal with those corruptions. Now, when we can talk about how it needs to be completely perfect and it needs to be eliminated. I'm not someone who's saying let's go, let's be pro-corruption as well. But what I'm also advocating is that I can't give you a, a system with which has nothing as opposed to a system which is doing something, right? Yeah. If, even if that something is doing is really bad, right? Uh, and just it's very important to understand that Pakistan, I there is not one government which I have seen has gone through a full five-year tenure in terms of being able to uh, being able to make necessary changes. There have been military dictatorships. There have been so many other things, global factors as well, uh, geopolitical factors, which in the end, we have military taking most of the chunk of the budget and in the least of it going to health. Right? And I'm, it must be said, while I, be, I might be saying, oh, there were external people who plundered us and that is why we no. There were people complicit within us and there are governments, the structures that we have, the people who hold the, the, are leading these structures are reenacting that le colonial legacy. They're exactly behaving like how other people behave with us. They're just behaving with their, their own people this way, right? Uh, so I'll just give you, before we, even though we're talking about healthcare, but I just want to talk about the pervasiveness of this colonial aspect over here. If you go to any elite housing society over here, when you're building a house, there is always one extra room built, whether on the top or at the back, as a servant quarter, right? For people, for people of the lower class to come and stay with them. This is exactly what happened to us when we were colonized and the colonizers came and made servant quarters for brown people to go into. And so these things are very relevant still today. All right. It's just that the faces have changed, changed, the values have not. It's in our education system. It's in our healthcare system. It's in our army. The, the, this is a, we might think that, oh, we're just prone to military dictatorships, but this is a colonial legacy. Look at Egypt, look at practically any Muslim country and see the role of the military over there. Right. And I really think that that's simply because there is no other organization. And by organization, I mean someone like a group of group of people who can be consistent and follow protocols. There's no other organization which is which we can count on apart from the army, right? And whether it's floods or all of these things, or even a, or even political turmoil, in the end, it's always the army that's coming to save us. So having a corrupt government does not necessarily mean that there's intrinsically something wrong within people, all right? There, there could be elements external to us which have we have not been able to get rid of, 
right? And we're learning to get rid of that. So uh, my point is that, that this is a whole package. We can't just start working on one thing and think that, okay, we'll just increase the healthcare budget and we'll increase the accountability measures over there. Therefore, all the all the investment will go in the right places, right? Um, again, it's also about how these big donor organizations deal with little countries like us, right? If you look at how IMF, IMF, uh, IMF is cranking up their rates in terms in light of the inflation in all countries, especially in developing countries, you can see the aftermath over here in terms of that, right? Uh, these bodies, these transnational bodies, were set up after World War II, right, in a certain power hierarchy, which still exists today. And part of, I would say that if corruption is being perpetuated, part of it is simply because a lot of funds are just uh, drooling and dropping in over here without the necessary checks and balances from those bodies in the first place, right? And so it's a whole system. It's not just that the that this government is complicit in it. The whole global system is catered towards not allowing us to change, to become independent, to do these things for ourselves, right? So whether it's people within Pakistan and outside Pakistan, they have vested interests and those interests don't tend to extend beyond their own selves. So that has been the essential issue. Corruption is one aspect of it. Uh, corruption, it happens in all societies as well, albeit in various degrees, right? But I don't think that we, in spite of that corruption, we still have low cost quality healthcare still going on over here. So just thinking on that aspect that maybe money would go in the right places, that is, I think, just looking at uh, in a very one dimensional way. There are yes. multiple factors yes. to look into. And, and, and... <laughs> A system can be efficient or inefficient, irrespective of whether the management of it is corrupt or not corrupt. Um, so, um, uh, you know, um, we we have a we have a um, we have a government here that, in the world scale, we're supposedly um, um, fairly fairly uh, comfortable with their honesty and integrity, but by gosh. I can tell you about a, a lot of inefficiencies within our government structures and they're managing things. So, so I, I, I fully take your point um, that um, that's not necessarily the answer. Um, there's, 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 um, there's military juntas, there's, there's um, many, many um, organisations outside of the law that look after their own a whole lot better than those that are in the law. So. Definitely, definitely. And it's just really about how organized you are. So military organizations just tend to be strictly and, re and aggressively organized, right? And that's the advantage that they have. There is no room for debate in, in a particular sense and you just go through it. And that's where their efficiency comes from. Now, whether that efficiency is well-directed or life-affirming, those are the things which we need to cater to. You can't just say just because we've reached this amount of pro, pro, these amount of profits, we've made the necessary change we've done. So it's a little more complicated than that, I believe. Yep. I think yeah. um, as we are coming close to the end of this podcast session, I would love to end up with this question to both of you uh, as to what can be some of the key takeaways 
you know because at the end of the day we are trying to add some value out of this podcast episode for our audience so any top two or three key takeaways which both the developing and developed countries can take moving forward from here on after seeing the pandemic that we have seen in both kinds of countries um you know starting from george and then we'll move to fazan uh, what do you think can be those initiatives in terms of coming from the government coming from the social perspectives and coming from you know great people like fazan who are starting something of their own and trying to create a social impact in their countries so for me what i found interesting uh, from the discussion is you look at australia you look at the us as two countries that are developed and you look at pakistan and yet fazan was raising the same sorts of issues that we have in our own country and and the medical system in in the us is nothing to be proud of um i i recently had a a, a stay in hospital for a very minor thing um but uh, one of the medical staff said to me if you're in america you would be you would have spent 15 to 20,000 dollars by now now um in australia it cost me i think a thousand dollars so it's not just developed a, and 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 uh, emerging countries i think the other thing is that covid covid has proven that doesn't matter which country you're in doesn't matter what the system is things like things like covid they don't it doesn't care it it doesn't it doesn't single out any one one part of society to the other and in some cases i, I think a very valid point that was unmade um uh, when people over in Pakistan were told stay home, they stayed home. In Australia, oh, I've got rights, and that helped that helped spread it because nobody would listen. So, um, and of course, the inefficiencies. Um, we have we have the story of uh, too many ambulances, not enough bed. Uh, Fazan has the same situation over there. Completely. Uh, so really insightful, George. That's that those are great takeaways, and uh, I would just like to add to them and talk about <coughs> the, this 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 um, specialization uh, uh, genre, right? To think that we that someone who comes from abroad is more specialized and can take care of local issues. I think that is a big issue that we need to address. Uh, if, if someone from Pakistan is going to a higher resource setting and getting trained over there for operating in a lower resource setting, do you see the irony in that? The person is being trained to be operating in a higher resource setting and then they have to come back in a lower resource setting to do it. So no matter what sort of training they've gone through, the latest gadgets and everything, they will find a deprivation of the same appreci appreciative climate over there for those things. All right. They won't find the sort of protocols over there. They'll just be very disenchanted when they come back, right? And yes. for that, there's no local, locally generated context of case studies to look into for us to set our own president precedents and really look into how we should be taking our own healthcare, right? It needs again. It's like the McDonaldization of the world. If the West is doing healthcare like that, we need to do it like that no matter what it is because we're getting donations and funds from the west if we don't fall on the same template we're not going to be getting it the next time so when you talk about sort of when you talk about those under reporting or over reporting of cases right you can obviously see what's the incentive and motivation behind that right 
so this this and again we just really need to get out of that dependency cycle like the fact that we have that it's not only that the system allows us to stay dependent but it is our own mentality as well which keeps us in that cycle right so locally generated case studies people over here who are not just trained as doctors that's also a big thing to think about when we're entering an entrepreneurial landscape doctors don't seem to have that sort of skill set to understand how to go about these things now every day every doctor is complaining almost every doctor is complaining that low paid jobs or there are no jobs they haven't been given anti any entrepreneurial skill set to actually go into a setting and start that thing they have an amazing skill set anyone would be taking like go going to them and doing it but obviously they've been trained a certain way they need an environment they can't go and build it up themselves so multiple stakeholders entrepreneurs academics intellectuals need to come together right and really go towards the creation of smart digital villages right you want a, a, a digitized world in order to make them inclusive healthcare is the doorway it is the most immediate way you can convince someone of the new world that you're promising right you can talk about agritech you can talk about fintech you can talk about all of these things but these things take time to show their benefits or edtech even right but with health tech you immediately respond to a crisis and you earn the trust of the community and what happens is that you keep on doing it and this is exactly what uh, my organization did uh, i also have co-founded another organization saving nine so with that organization we came up with that this uh, rural healthcare system right and so we did this for 3 years and when the corona virus came the the people were with us it was we they understood what we were talking about we had their trust it wasn't like we were just immediately making plans and doing that right we were in a way already ready for it so working over here locally with low cost solutions all of these things really matter for us to be able to sustain healthcare over here it won't be the insurance model or the high tech developed situation over here but it can't get things rolling towards it and so that's just my take away that uh whether we're corrupt or something we have a historical baggage baggage to deal with in terms of that but what we do have is a will directed towards life affirmation and that is uh, something which i do not see in developed countries all right there is it is an increasingly isolated and fragment fragmentary society and what the west can learn from developed developing countries is to actually learning how to come together in at these points i mean yes you have rights yes you do but please do not infringe upon the rights of others while trying to exert your own that's the take away yeah. i believe that the west can really get from this yeah um well thank you so much fazan and george for participating in this episode i see that we have really gained a lot of uh, good insights from this session be it collaborating with different stakeholders or the impact of the social initiatives that we can see um one of the things that i'm always a big fan of is collaborating with different people and that's what i always say we have a european union we have got an african union why can't we have a union in the south asian region where we have those trade deals uh, where we have those collaborations with education and healthcare unfortunately we have not been able to come out of the defense mindset uh, and the mindset that you know we are always acting against each other um, and we are not acting together i think the moment we change that mindset a lot can change in south asia because i'm from india and you are from pakistan peasant so you know there is always a need to improve our areas to improve our regions collaboratively 
um, you know, and acting as a as a as as an entity instead of acting against each other, because that's how you know we can improve our economies there um, in the developing countries and also the developed countries here in Australia and US. Um, the way we have been tackling those challenges, as George pointed out, that how those efficiencies and inefficiencies are there in our system here in states like Victoria, New South Wales, and I think you have rightly pointed out that those examples of floods that we have recently faced, and you know, we didn't have any answers to that. Um, there, were, there were lives lost in that. Uh, we were not able to come up with any solutions to that. Even we are very developed here. We say that we are a developed country. So, Even the wildfires so were really concerning before a few years ago. They were really concerning and how they were like completely burning everything in Australia. And it's really important to come together. Thank you, Saurabh, for inviting me. And thank you, George. And in the end, I really hope that we can go towards a more collaborative model in this world because the seeds of hate have been sowed in a lot of societies over here a few 200 years ago. And it's about time we rise above them and go to because the next problems aren't nationalistic. All right. They're global, whether it's a pandemic or climate change. Now is the time we come together. And if we don't, then we can't look forward to a world which can regenerate any further than it won't. It just will start dilapidating more and more. Thank you so much, guys. And I hope I look forward to having more conversations with you in the future as well. This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney.